Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today we're at episode 104, called The Regenerative Business. In this episode, I welcome another guest author, Carol Sanford, to discuss her 2017 book, The Regenerative Business. Redesign work, cultivate human potential, achieve extraordinary outcomes. For four decades, Carol has worked with great leaders of successful businesses such as Google, DuPont, Intel, P&G, and 7th Generation, educating them to develop their people and ensure a continuous stream of innovation that continuously delivers extraordinary results. I'm now joined by Carol Sanford, who's the author of The Regenerative Business. How are you doing, Carol? I'm great. I'm the author of five books. That's my third one out of five. Yeah, I was going to get to that. I know you've been on a long journey here, lasting some 40 years or so. Let's start at the beginning. Um, What is the sort of essence of what you're all about, Carol? Probably you could say it's about consciousness at one level, because consciousness to me is not sitting in a, a group meditating, but it's learning how to pay attention to your effects in the world, what's going on inside of you that's driving outside, including what's going on with your customers and the stakeholders you have in the world, and be able to see all of that in real time. That's what I'm about. And I apply it to strategy, leadership, operationalizing, and leading change. And I think you started way back when in the people side of things, people processes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that story. People processes. Well, I've always done a whole system thing. The only thing I can think of is when you're talking about when I was working on my doctorate in psychology. And so I did a lot of research on how motivation works, what's the effect of various ways of thinking, But I was being a college professor on that track at that point, and it felt incomplete to me. But certainly people and the interaction and dynamics of the inner working of people and their exchange is still a third leg of a stool that would fall down without that. Well, I know on the book side of things, um, you've written now uh, five books. Well, one's coming out in, in a couple of weeks in March 10th. You started off with the responsible business uh, and then the responsible entrepreneur. And now the one we're talking about today, the regenerative business. What sort of sets you on this path to to talk about responsibility and regenerative uh, uh, business and personal life? Well, if I had had my publisher's agreement to call the first book the regenerative business, I would. They thought it was a term nobody knew. But what set me all on that track was probably my own childhood upbringing, which was fairly traumatic, and then a whole set of processes that had to do with how I watched people engage one another at growing up. And I started searching for teachers, people I could learn from. And I worked a little while with Joseph Campbell because we were co-teaching at a university, a few other folks along the way. and maybe even drawing forward my grandfather's lessons about how it is we need to think about our responsibility in the world and not just for ourselves and and other people, but for all living processes. And so it's kind of been a lifelong search, but in my early thirties about 
more than half of my lifetime ago, I began to see how organizations were the place that change really happened and reinforced things I thought should move. And that the corporate world or the business world of various organization types had more power than anyone else to move that. And so I set off on that track. Interesting. I think your grandfather was one from one of the native tribes, if, if I yes. recall my, uh, some videos You're that I've right. seen of you. Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather was half Mohawk of the Iroquois lineage and my grandmother as well. And so I got a lot of the indigenous learning through just how my grandfather farmed and took care of his pigs and talked to me as I was there. Yeah. That, that's very grounding in, um, you know, the natural world and understanding how all things work together. So let's get into the regenerative business a little bit. It's about redesigning work, cultivating human potential and achieving extraordinary outcomes. So what's the overview of this particular book and how does it fit in with, with the others that you have? Well, this one really fits with what you're about, Charles, which is it looks at what is human potential? What are we seeking to build in order for humans to, and I'm not ever, I don't think you ever, I think the term full potential doesn't get it, get anything because whoever gets there and who knows what that is, I think it keeps moving. But I, I have, with all the research I've done with my work with large and small scale organization have focused on three core human capacities that are not developed in our culture. Would it be helpful if I said those real quickly? Sure. The first one I got from my psychology research, which is locus of control, having an internal locus of control, holding myself accountable completely, whether I can do something about it outside, I also always have something I can do about how I respond to it. And most people end up with a sense or a large number, let's not say most, end up with external locus of control where they feel like the world is is creating who they are and you can't actually run a business or a relationship or a parenting process if you aren't working on that internal locus of control being built the second part which you had all hit out also in your interviews and in your book is about external considering that's what i call it some people call it purpose but purpose to me is a bit misleading because it can come back to people thinking too much about a shorter process for me considering is like what my grandmother said to me do you ever think about anything else besides yourself and she was always saying it in relation to other children but learning to have external considering which kind of starts with kindness, moving toward empathy, getting some compassion. But ultimately, I think it's about learning to care in a way we develop the capacity of all beings we touch. The third leg of that three-legged stool is personal agency. Again, sometimes we become passive to life. And at the very most, we move when required to move in either an authoritarian sense or a sense of someone we're in relationship where we have to rather than exercising our agency to make a fairly large change. So this book is about looking at those three things, how they work, how you build them. And it also has a lovely chapter, which spawned my fourth book called the 30 toxic practices. And it's the 30 that undermine that. And they're the ones people often call best practices like incentives, rewards, recognition, feedback, 
my fourth book was about the feedback when in great detail and all the research I had done in graduate school and later on the effect of that on diminishing those three capacities. And then the final, I probably 25% of that book is about how you build an organization that is one that augments and fosters and develops those three human capacities. You, you also asked me to say how it fits with the other. You want me to do that now or you've got somewhere else you want to go? Uh, that's okay. Let's go ahead with that. So the responsible business, which I was forced to name it, and it was the best I could do, is about how to do an ecosystem's version of strategic thinking. Most businesses do strategy based on last year's results or competitive results or some idea from marketing research. And instead of being able to actually understand what a regenerative view and responsible view is, which is to plan as though you're responsible for all your stakeholders. So I give each of my books have 15 case stories. That one has a forward written by Chad Holliday, who is chairman, CEO and president of DuPont. As we rebuilt for a short time, unfortunately, after he left in 10 years, some of this was taken apart. But how to build it so build an ecosystem strategy so that your customers are healthy, your employees, suppliers, contractors are Earth is made uh, stronger and healthier communities you live in prosper and love having you there because of what you do and those who invest in you. So that book was about how to take that system and understand how it worked and how to design for that much complexity in a way that's really focused. And as I said, it has 15 great case stories. The second book, the responsible entrepreneur is I had a bunch of folks who were in smaller companies, entrepreneurial, and said, well, I love the responsible business and it's got a few things about how you run a smaller business, but I don't understand how when I am an entrepreneur trying to do great things in the world to actually know what would make it work. And I've actually done a couple of recent podcasts on this on my podcast channel, um, but it was for people who actually, with their small business, I mean, I did have folks in there, I like B-Lab helping people do things. I have even one group out of Google, some folks who built a transformation in phishing, and each of those were about how to, to transform one arena that like either social systems, governing systems, or individual systems in which you're doing business, how a small business can create a huge change. And then we just talked about the responsible business. The fourth one I already hinted at, which is taking one of those toxic practices to the three core human capacities and talking about where that practice came from, why in the world it's so destructive. Again, 15 case stories, and then what you could do instead. And that one's called No More Feedback. And as you mentioned, the new one, which will be out in uh, March, March 10th, I again had individuals asking me, what about me as an individual, a sole proprietor, I mean, an individual contributor, and I don't have control of the organization, what can I do for my role and if I'm not a hero? So the regenerative life is about the nine core roles, and I don't mean jobs, I mean roles, like when you are being a designer, you could be that in hundreds of different kinds of jobs. 
or you're being an economic shaper. You do that every time you spend money or you make decisions for your company. How you take the major nine roles that are core to having a system which creates a life for yourself and a life that can make a difference. And by the way, one last thing that pulls them all together, I noticed you write about how the way we organize undermines capitalism. I write about how it undermines democracy and how the mess that we're in right now that is so polarized comes from much about how we structure work systems. And that's what we're talking about today, the regenerative business and how we structure work systems. Yeah. As you define regenerative, I think it's it says regeneration is a process by which people, institutions, and materials evolve the capacity to fulfill their inherent potential in a world that's constantly changing. So that's a lot of words, but how does that relate to the work design that you're that you hinted at? The thing about regeneration is it's always built on essence. That means who this child is, I'm working with uniquely and distinctively on their potential, not some generic idea about what children at age seven should have that he is not yet achieving. So what you want to do is build their capacity to be able to express that essence. So I'm starting with the child because that's often easier to see. And most people either had children or they were one. And so they know what that means. <laughs> the um, way it relates to a business is a business also has an essence. So what I do with every company I work with, and I'm like you, it's over three to eight year period. Um, we start with understanding the essence of business and it is not its strengths and weaknesses. It is not what makes it unique specifically. It is what it is because that was in the founding. It was in the founding process in the founder or founders. And I go back and help discover and realize, not make up, not decide, but realize what that essence is. Now, that becomes something you are working on building capacity of everything in the organization to resonate with that essence. So a regenerative organization is not about renewal and resilience, although those do happen. It's about essence expression through the building of capacity. So it's not about doing something. It's not about, it's not even about the specific work design if it's not working on evolving the capacity of every individual to be able to rise and contribute from their essence in connection with the essence of a stakeholder or customer um, market they're in and therefore ultimately the stakeholder of the business that they are doing all that inside of or if they're not you can do the whole same thing with a family that make it a little clearer yeah so you're going back to the founding story of the company and looking for the essence um, let's get into an example i think you worked with um coldgate if i'm not wrong in South Africa at one point. Tell us a little bit yep. about that example. All right. So I have to do very shorthand versions of this, but Colgate was founded, the Colgate side of Colgate Palmolive by um, Mr. Colgate, I've forgotten his first name right now, who cared a lot about people and particularly women who needed help in the communities where his original manufacturing and sales facilities were. And so he set up a way to start having women be able to build and get ready and move toward the capacity to join his workforce and still have the ability to have their families taken care of. Now, 
that stuff, quite a bit of it got lost along the way. So we went back a little bit to Mr. Colgate's story. But we also went to South Africa's story because you're nested in a place. And the South Africa and what was happening when I was there, that was as the new South Africa was coming into existence, the new constitution was being drawn. What we did is looked at, well, what is the, his, the founding or the, what we know about the earliest part and therefore the patterns in South Africa? And they have always been about birthing. So we believe humans, you know, the science tells us the earliest version of what we know as a humanoid happened there and spread around the world. And they hold strongly to that story and that image. Whether we believe it or not from where we look at them, they have birthed so many different changes. And we said, and here we are again, birthing the new South Africa, which is based on bringing equity across systems, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of our beginnings, we want to create that kind of system. So now we took that and said, all right, one of them is about when one part of the founding of Mr. Colgate is about making a difference in communities for people who can't do everything yet for himself themselves. And the other is coming out of South Africa. We began to build strategic planning, which involved all eight tribes who are in the South African um, domain and the fiduciaries. And one of the things that we said we were going to do is meet the constitutional requirement, which was supposed to be done within five years, to have the senior management of the company match the uh, racial mix of the population. That meant since the racial population was 95% black African, the top of Colgate needed to be 95% black African within five years. Now, most companies, especially those from overseas, were freaking out saying, but these people haven't been allowed to go to school their entire life, their parents' entire life, and in some cases, their um, grandparents. And Stelio Sesos, who was the general manager for Colgate, said that didn't mean they're not smart. It just means they don't know, they have less to unlearn. And we start, we built a developmental practice within the company, which is not just about training and putting stuff into people. It was about contributing and making a difference. And we were able within six months to meet that requirement without laying off any white African Africans, or we had one who left. And so we, we used the power of that to birth that, to take that idea about South Africa birth, and it does things to bring about equity and made that happen. I could give you tons of stories, and there are a lot of those in my first book, The Responsible Business, about what we did in South Africa, including how we work with women in the townships following Mr. Colgate's story, building businesses of their own that were around oral health and working with dentists, et cetera. And another one was about building the first, the birthing, the first councils that Mandela built for governing townships that were made up of all the tribes which lived within that township. We got the award, the constitutional award, which Mandela created just for Colgate. I always say we. I, I didn't do anything except be the educator and hopefully a spirit guide. To that happening but that gives you somewhat of a taste of what it means to take and we do it in product development in sales plans everything gets imbued not with just that essence but always with that essence. okay so 
There's also in the book the principles of regeneration, and I think there's seven of those. Perhaps we don't have time to get into those in great depth, but um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in companies that uh, is is holdover from the industrial revolution. It's the machine uh, sort of paradigm. And one of your key points in the book is working with living holes. So you you want to work with living systems. Um, looking at frogs, not by dissecting them, but by looking at them within their environment. How, do, how does this particular principle guide how you work with essences and, and the other parts of, of your process? Okay, there are several things here. One, the bad, outdated, toxic practices we have, many are much older than the Industrial Revolution. They come from the times of kings, and queens and ordained ideas about somebody else knew better than everybody else, like hierarchies, like delegation. All of that stuff is older. It was just magnified in the first and then the second industrial revolution. One of the things that works against and tries to slow that down is the idea of don't work with parts, which could mean something like, I have a, I'm going to use the child example again because everybody gets it quickly and then I can translate it. A child, if you look at what it is you think they need to work on, and many parents fall into this trap of this thing, that thing, they can't do math, they can't do sports, they aren't good at teamwork, they don't clean up their room, and they start working on the side of a child that is not whole. But if you look at the essence of that child and you begin to see what it's trying to express, first you get rid of all the generic standards about what a child should be and therefore most of the things that were problems you know that like the frog being cut up go away because now you're looking at this child being able to really go where they want to go and there's so much research showing that children shine when they they were seen as a unique being but as a unique whole being and that means all of them was there and then you can ask the question what is in their way to realizing that essence, not what is a problem because it works against what the standard would be for a child this age, gender, whatever we're holding. So it breaks a really stuck spot with a child, but it does the same thing with a corporation. So with seventh generation, once we looked at that they were about, their essence was about transparency, we were able to start to say, well, what is the whole that seventh generation exists in. And there were a couple of them that we had to start designing from. One was the uh, Champlain, Vermont, or it's not all in Vermont, but the Champlain watershed. So you can't design without thinking about your effect on an entire, or as I call them, life sheds, because we call them water, because that's where our water comes from. But that's not a whole view of them, right? They're also air sheds, food sheds, not just for us, but animals. We don't know how to find what a hole is and it usually you'll have to go back to natural systems. And we do the same thing when we work with where we're gonna get raw materials from. We go to Indonesia, we look at some kind of resin or pine oil, and we don't even understand that everything we're doing is helping all of Indonesia and maybe the watershed it's in. So learning, oh, one other quick one, which is on the human side. There are people who work out of fair trade and what they mean by fair trade is there have certain standards they meet with a company where they agree to pay fair wages, make sure that they're not engaged in slavery or demeaning of the people who are in the company. What they don't look at is 
what's happening with people who are not in the company but are strongly affected. So I worked with one group that discovered they were doing a great job of making sure the people who were inside had good jobs and were paid fairly, but the people who had really had the skills, the dyeing, weaving, because this was all textiles, were without work, and they were the elders of community, and there was a, they were creating a strong weakness by focusing only on this thing called the company boundaries, and when they began to look at the community, all that existed in, so finding the whole allows you to find out what are you effective, and it takes some practice to learn to do it without do, doing all the data you think you have to do for that. So it's a big jump to go from understanding frogs by cutting them up and naming them and pinning them on a board to understanding frog copying in an ecosystem, breeding, producing, doing things that are healthy for soil, for water, because they have a role. There's not so quick and dirty version of holes. Yeah, so in looking at frogs, Certainly, you living frogs. Uh, you you begin to realize um, how they are connected to everything else in the ecosystem. And uh, let's say you take out the wolves in in Yellowstone, uh, then the whole ecosystem is upset, and you bring them back, and, right. and it's it's because a balance. The, yeah, yeah, because the wolves um, kept elk intact and in, in, in check. And the minute you don't take care, you don't have wolves. You have the elk who trample down the streams and destroy the habitat for fish and rearrange it. When we put them back in, it was amazing how quick the working, and it's not just naming the hole, it's seeing the working of the hole, which is what you were just describing, Charles. It's the working of those in an interactive way, and everything does affect everything else, but that becomes a platitude. How? How does that work? Can you become an ecologist in your mind? and be able to see something so you work with it only after you understand how it works. Yeah, I was fortunate uh, in my graduate studies, uh, I studied evolutionary biology. Um, and so uh, I gained an appreciation of some of these things. But you know, I, I've been struck uh, for some time now about how many very toxic practices are in most businesses today. And you know, if you go back to let's say 1495, uh, Luca Pacioli wrote the book on double entry bookkeeping. And so for the last 500 years, we've had yep. that, that whole thing about profit and, uh, you know, uh, which morphed into shareholder value. So the over financialization, basically, of uh, the indicators that are driving business. What, what is your take on, on how we overcome uh, that uh, at the same time doing regenerative business? Well, it's not. Yes, at the same time, it is. That accounting system, plus most other practices, came from a very inward-looking view that said, how do we track what's good for us, not what's good for the nested holes of which we're a part? When I work with performance indices with a company, I don't allow them. I mean, I do everything I can to lay my body on the line to have nothing they count and measure internally for at least a year. It's very hard to break that habit where profit is the is named as what we get back and i start to teach them in my business courses that we run over a period of time how to measure what the outcome is uh, with the people you're serving so what are your customers measuring specifically and then how do you relate to that and you're never allowed to do a measure or, or and metrics 
are not even very helpful because they slice, they're chopping up frogs. You look at how they would measure and that becomes your performance indices. So with DuPont, we're looking at airbags, which were a, a big deal for a while. We pulled together the five major airbag makers and said, what are they measuring? And they said, they're really measuring the safety in the face of an unexpected collision. And that's why they think they've got this car with this airbag. And up until then, they'd been measuring yarn strength and returns on how many pieces of yarn came back from the airbag makers. Well, when they started measuring it, two other steps downstream, first the safety in the face of um, an unexpected uh, intervention for the world, but they found they could even get more if they looked at web breaks of the, the automaker, the airbag maker, not their own tensile strength, but it turned out it was how the airbag was woven and what it meant to be able to have a web, which is what you cut an airbag from, never break, told you what was going to happen with the airbag. There was one other thing on stitching, but we don't need to do all that today. They then started measuring their ability to help them produce an unbreakable web. And they got so that they were 90% better. And it, it, it drove many, well, they didn't intend to drive people out, but they drove people out of business who were still measuring tensile strength and returns. If you don't get that larger hole and you measure performance from the outside, you get what we now call externalities, right? Well, that wasn't my job. I measured to perform. I measured to the performance specs they gave us. So that's how I work on it is getting up, learning to see things as nested and downstream and measure downstream, not upstream. And so many of those toxic practices like, like accounting, double entry accounting no longer makes sense. Yeah. Well, you, you touched on indicators as being a, a problematic area. I think even if you go to objectives, uh, that's that's an even more problematic area. And when the C-suite sets the objectives, and then they determine whether they've measured, uh, they've achieved them, that's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's um, self-referential. So what I like to say is that um, every organization has the same uh, goal, basically, which is to be effective within its environment. Um, and that depends on how the environment is responding to you, basically. Um, and so that's, that's where you get into that nested thing. You're part of a larger environment, and what you're supplying, um, the, the ultimate worth is, of that is determined by how the environment responds. Uh, so I think, you know, we're, we're... So can I... Yeah, go ahead. Can I, dis can I disagree with you? Sure, go ahead. I, I think those or abstractions. What I tell people is everyone, every strategy you have has to be unique and distinctive. I don't work with objectives. I work with strategic direction, which has objectives ultimately been built into it, but that's up and down the organization. And your work is to discover how the people you affect and agree to serve can become more able to express their essence. It is not to be effective with them because that leaves you working on what you already got agreements about. Your job is to innovate. And I designed work systems that mandate, demand everybody who works there are innovating, innovating in order to bring new capacity to, let's say, in this case, a customer 
and what they're seeking to produce in the world because of their essence. That's a much bigger, harder thing to do because it's much easier to learn to be effective. Um, and effectiveness, I love what you talked about, about efficiencyisms, uh, because I say what really is efficient is everything that doesn't contribute to effectiveness. But for to me, effectiveness is measured by the capacity of a strategy and an organization as a whole to innovate in service of, I call them promises beyond ableness, in service of a stakeholder, a customer, earth, communities, in service of building their capacity to live out their aspiration, which is based in their essence. So you have to get the mind. The mind of a CEO to me is usually thinking not only downstream, but out. And you want them to know that that's going to be moving all the time. It's never static. So that's foundationally what I think it means to be regenerative is you're always regenerating, therefore innovating for the people downstream in terms of their measure. Yeah, um, we would probably have to have a longer conversation on effectiveness. The reason I started this podcast is because effectiveness is a contested space, basically. And there are several different models, none of which actually can be verified in the field. And so I was uh, working in that area to see if we could find some clarity. Uh, we're still uh, a little yeah. away, away from that, but um, uh, that's, that's the direction that I wanted to go. Yeah, uh, I like what you're doing. I read a lot of your stuff in preparation for this, listened to a few things, and I think you are raising some of the most fundamental, profound questions. Great. I, I do try to do some of that, and, and maybe some of it's off the wall, but anyway, um, we can all learn from, from finding our way in, in these areas. But that brings me to the question of how do we have a model for the future, basically. The regenerative business does provide something of a model. Um, and so if we look forward to, let's say, the next 100 years, the next 10 years, even the next 1,000 uh, years, and look back where we've come from, you know, you could look back 10,000 years ago, and that's at the beginning of the Neolithic Revolution when management uh, essentially got its start uh, as, as people were trying to domesticate agriculture and livestock. And there was an intention there to, to bring these things about, and they, they took actions that eventually, uh, over a, a good long period of time, you know, made that happen. So we need models to take forward into the future that are not uh, creating these externalities that you're talking about and that uh, are more um, uh, you know, sustainable and uh, less waste and, and not using so many resources. So what is your take on how we move forward yeah. for the next uh, 100 years? So first, you get rid of all models. I don't believe in models. I believe they're generic. I believe that's the opposite of regenerative. I use frameworks. Now, the difference is models give you an answer, which you just asked me to give you. Frameworks give you the ongoing questions, which you keep having to ask repeatedly in a modern evolutionary time in regard to the essence of some entity. So I have, in Business Second Opinion, my podcast, I've got two or three talking about why models are our plague. They are one of the oldest, most outdated, toxic practices to articulate something we think could be generic and last 100 years. I want to have people learn to use living frameworks, which have on them the place to keep forming the questions that then people are working and engaging and building the mind. So if there's any way I could answer a question, it would say building the mind 
that gives up models, mental models, which we get attached to, and learning to substitute the capacity for thinking and consciousness using frameworks that are built off of how living systems work. So by definition, anything alive, you can never say how it ought to be in the future. You have to say, what is its essence and how do I support it becoming that? And that's my at least best guess and best advice about how people should work is no more mental models. Move to living system framework. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with framework. Um, uh, and, and for me, a model is not uh, cast in stone. Uh, it's, it's something you can work with. And, uh, but my main point is, yeah, what, do, what do we include in our framework? Um, uh, and how do we ensure that it replaces what's going on now, you see? Because uh, <laughs> what we have right now is, is propagating itself uh, uh, wildly. So what you just described was a model. You don't include anything in a framework. You don't say it ought to be this and it replaces that. That, by definition, is making something generic and standardized again. A framework, let me give you an example of a framework. A framework would be something like, what is the wholeness of a human being and how do we work for that? I gave you earlier internal control, external considering, and personal agency. So I don't say what that ought to look like. I don't. When I work with businesses, I don't get them to design a, a, a way that they, they have to redesign later. I get them to design one that is always asking, how, how are we doing? Any new program, any new product, any new way of gauging, how does it build or affect internal locus control with people? If we're setting up competency programs or incentives, what does that do to internal locus control? What does it do to building more external considering versus if we're going to do downsizing, what's it going to do to locus uh, internal considering? Now people are going to think, oh my God, it's all about me versus I can think about others. So the nature of a framework has no answers that supplant the old answers or we're just creating a new mental model which will die. It's a way of thinking that gives you the reference points you want to keep forming questions in regard to and that's what my work for 42 years have been about and why I show all the case studies so people can see the difference in proscribing a new way of doing something, the new paradigm, and instead learn that how we think is what's producing it all. And any new thing we created, any new answer would come from an outdated mind that doesn't know how to generate live in the moment based on the essence of something. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm getting at uh, how do we get rid of the toxic practices, which you have enumerated in, in through education. Through, yeah, you do it through education. You keep asking people to reflect on themselves. So everything I run has no prescription, it has no curriculum, has no designed prescription. It instead has the arenas for self-assessment. So I work with corporate leaders, all of them in a room, mixed up and down the organization with sales, marketing, and I show them a framework and say, assess yourself against this. So assess yourself against how the practices you have for human resource management are affecting local control, internal, external considering, personal agency. And they go, oh my God, I cannot believe that we're doing that. If I had gone in and assessed them and said, here's what you ought to look like, you ought to all have these things, they would have take a little of this, a little of that, but I teach them how to do self-assessment in a process that lets them discover where their own shortfalls are without any external 
influence pressure. I never tell people to be sustainable. In fact, I don't even think sustainability is a good goal. I ask them to learn how to think about the ecosystems they're in, and I give them a framework to do self-assessment. So the way you get there is through education and development of people to think better and be self-discovering about what needs to move, and then give them the next set of frameworks about how they design the next evolution. You don't ever give them the answer. I agree with education, uh, although I think it's, in this uh, case, a bit slow maybe, and is not easily propagated throughout the, uh, you know, the business world. Uh, because, so it's, go ahead. It's, that's not true. I mean, that's not true. I've been doing it for years. All the several hundred people have studied with me have been doing it for years. If you go look at many of the organizations are really moving, they're moving because of that. And it is always tied to the business and business improvement. So people want to learn to do that. But I know that, you know, I mean, all the case stories I have and the reason I put all of those stories in the book and have those folks talking about it is because it spreads the work and it is the fastest way. The other way means you're always working against a mind which can't see what you're seeing and it will restrain what you tell it is right. Just like we're doing with sustainability, do this and that and people then greenwash. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. You have to get people so they can be self-correcting, self-determining. And you do that. And people get very excited with very little engagement with the self-discovery method. It's a very different epistemology of change, a different theory of change. But if I hadn't had it work I, and seen how fast something could change, they just told you South Africa, we changed so much in six months, it just blew away all the people who were there. So I'd say take my way. It's the fast way. Yeah. I think in the case of South Africa, you had the buy-in from the top political leaders, uh, which which gave no, you an inroad. I didn't inside the, not at, no. no, Charles, I didn't have them in the company. I didn't have them in the company at all. We had one political leader. I'm talking about what happened inside of a company mm -hmm. where everybody fought us but the general manager who had worked with me in Europe doing the same thing. But we didn't do it by telling him to do anything. All we did was said, we're going to do some education for how to run a business better. People said, great, go for it. And we did it all through education. We did nothing with pressure or mandate. I, I like I like your idea. Anyway, certainly we're not going to be able to look at all aspects of the book. Uh, it's a fascinating read, though. Thank you. Since, since we're coming to the end of the episode, uh, what else would you like to leave us with that we haven't talked about? And how can we uh, access uh, some of your more material on your websites or whatever? The major thing is become ridiculously skeptical about what people tell you about how um, and what you should be doing and become a person who wants to question and shift your own beliefs and test the ideas that you're hearing. I give people a way to do that on Business Second Opinion. My, uh, It's not an interview podcast. I'm the on-air talent with my co-host, Zach Swartout. And what we do is take one idea out of Harvard Business Review, one article at a time, one idea at a time, and critique it looking at how you assess something for whether or not it works, whether or not it makes it make sense, whether it fits a variety of larger frameworks, which you could consider. I have people compare sustainability to regeneration to circular economy, and I give them a paradigm framework to be able to make sense out of all of that. I don't tell them which to choose. 
I tell them, here, look at the effects that you get. And so I'd love for people to join me. You can find that at carolsanford.com connections to all my books. I also have out today the new audio book on No More Feedback. But you also can go there and buy a few in bulk books or quite a few in bulk books on the new one, The Regenerative Life. And you can join a book club and get to talk to me and work and listen, depending on what level you buy books at. You can um, get a lot more than just the books, and you still have the books, and you don't pay me the enormous amount of money you usually have to pay to work with me. That's it. Thank you, Charles. Okay. Well, um, you know, I've listened to the Business Second Opinion myself. Uh, you and Zach do a great job uh, playing off each other, and that's, that's also a great, great source. Thanks for being with us uh, today, Carol. It's been fascinating, and I uh, hope to uh, follow up with some of these ideas in the future. Great. Thank you, Charles. You're a delight. And that's about all for today. You can connect with Carol at her website, carolsanford.com. She also hosts two podcast series, Business Second Opinion and Regenerative Business, both of which you should check out. You can find a list of all of Carol's books and the show notes for this episode at ageofoe.com forward slash 104 along with links to her two podcast series. And thanks for joining us today. Join us again next time when we'll consider more stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. So long for now.